Please take out your copy of God's and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this time in the worship service, God, where we can come and we can be fed by your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is truth. God, help us by your Spirit's power to take it. God, plant it deep within us. Keep conforming us to the image of your Son, that we might glorify your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the doctrine of the virgin birth. We also looked at its defense from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And today we're going to take another look at Matthew chapter 1 in the same verses, 18 through 25. But today our task is to look at the name Jesus and to look at the name Emmanuel. So let's read from this passage now. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, but he took, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. My full name is Matthew Scott Thompson. And the book of Matthew is one of my favorite books, and in part because this is where my namesake comes from. Uh, the book of Matthew was my brother's favorite book in the Bible, and so he wanted to name me Matthew. And by the grace of God, that's my name. My parents allowed him to pick my name, and so here it is. And consequently, it means gift of God, and I know every one of you would agree. Uh, <laughs> I got some amens in the foyer and some omes up here in the in sanctuary, but uh, it is what it really means, though. But and my middle name, Scott, comes from my maternal grandfather. It was my mom's dad's name. His name was Gordon Scott Price, and so my mom wanted me to have part of his name into mine, so Matthew Scott. And then I always say in jazz, my dad gave me my last name. So every every person in my family had a part in my name, Matthew Scott Thompson. Now, a fun fact about names and, and means, I, I love names. I love to find out where they came from. I love to know what they mean. I, it's just fascinating. When you uh, in this congregation are about to have children or grandchildren, I love to know what the child is going to be named. I want to know where you came uh, up with the name from. It's just fascinating to me. I, I love the idea of names. I even love to know why certain objects are called what they're called. It fascinates me. And when I when I figure out why something's called what it's called, it's just the greatest day for me. I just love that kind of stuff. But I'm not the only one who 
loves the idea of names. This is an important part of our world. It's an important part of our culture, if you think about it. Uh, You look at families and art and history, literature, uh, different kind of genres, too. I mean, you look at companies. They take great painstaking care to decide on what they're going to name their company because their brand is going to bear that name, and it's going to communicate something about their brand. So names are a very important part of our everyday lives. Now, when I was preparing to get this sermon ready, one quote kept coming to mind. It's a famous quote from Act 2, Scene 2 of Romeo and Juliet. And in this, the quote says, What is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And the idea here in this, in this scene is that between their love for each other, Romeo and Juliet, that their names should have no bearing on the situation. It, it shouldn't affect what takes place. They should be able to love each other, regardless of the fact that one's a captain, one's a Montague. But I'll tell you, though, this might be great for plays and poems, but when it comes to biblical prophecies and promises, it doesn't work. What's in a name? When it comes to salvation, everything, everything is in a name. And so we come back here to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at these very significant names that surround the birth of Christ, Jesus and Emmanuel. So let's first look at the name Jesus, and we see this in verses 21 and 25 uh, when we read this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And then down in verse 25. But he knew her not again until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So here we have this very familiar scene that we're all accustomed to at, the, at Christmas time looking at. The angel appears uh, to Joseph in a dream. And he tells Joseph what's about to happen. And he gives Joseph a command concerning the naming of this child. But I want to point out something too before we really dive into what the name means. But it's an important thing that anytime something or someone is named, it's an act of authority. It's an act of authority in naming a child. And the very act of naming someone is an authoritative act. I mean, you think back to Adam in the garden. He was tasked, he was given the privilege with naming the animals. And this was an exercise of dominion over these animals here. And so it's important to see that that Mary and Joseph do not get the traditional pleasure of selecting the child's name here. Rather, they receive a higher privilege in naming this child Jesus as directed by the angel of the Lord because his name has so much more meaning. There's so much more behind this than just family namesake. There is something that we're going to learn about this because it is God who is the ultimate one with authority, the Father, the one who is the one who sent this child into the world, who has ultimate authority over this child and his task and over his earthly parents. And it's by God's grace that Joseph and Mary get to to name this child Jesus. And this just points us back to the fact that, that God is the one who sent Jesus into the world. He is the one by whose authority Christ comes in and does all that he does. So let's get back to this name. Joseph is to give the child the name Jesus. Why Jesus? Why why this name? What's significant about this? And it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yehoshua or Yeshua. In English, we would have it as an equivalent of, of Joshua. And it simply means Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh saves. 
Now, when we hear the name Joshua, though, what comes to mind? I hope your name uh, brings up in a bell here for you. It's, it's just ringing, ringing, ringing. It's, it goes back to the Old Testament there, doesn't it? It's, he's the one who succeeds Moses. And he is the one who leads the people of Israel into the promised land by God's grace. But I want you to think about something that's very important to this story. Joshua is not the one who ultimately saved the people. That was God. God is the one who brought salvation to his people. And Joshua's name is Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh saves. Joshua's very name proclaims that fact. But again, Joshua is not the central story figure. That is God. God is the central figure in this. Joshua is a type, and he points us to a greater and higher person. And that person is Jesus, the very child that we are looking at here now. And this is significant for us because in Jesus, the meaning of the name and the man meet. You see, Joshua's name was just proclaiming that it is Yahweh who saves and that Yahweh is salvation. But in Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh who saves. He is the Yahweh who saves. He is the God who brings about the very salvation This isn't a mere marker of identity or family name. Rather, this has defined this child's purpose. Christ came into this world to do something specific. He is God in the flesh. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that his name is tied back to what he is called to do. Because, think about it, he's God in the flesh. And God does what he does because God is who he is. So what did Jesus come to do? I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about it. In the second part of verse 21, we see here that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Now, this word salvation or this idea of saving here can take on different meanings. It can mean from physical harm, from physical danger, or other kinds of afflictions. But Matthew doesn't leave this in question. Matthew comes back and explicitly states that he is here for a specific kind of salvation. He is here to save his people from their sins. You think about it. Jesus has come to save his people from the very thing that separated them from the holy, perfect, righteous God. He has come to save them from their sins. And it's real easy to throw this word around sin. But I'm afraid it has come to mean something very different in our day and time. Anything that we don't like can be a sin. But Scripture is the final authority on what defines sin. And and what God's Word says is this. Sin is anything that transgresses or violates God's law or His commands. 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committed sin transgresses the law, for sin is a transgression of law. So God's Word is the standard for what sin is. When the world tells us and commands us to do what God forbids, that's sin. And when the world tells us to not do what God commands, that's sin. And we need to really have a clear definition of this. And this is important too, because this affects every single one of us in this room, in all of history, except for Jesus Christ. Every one of us has sinned against God no one escapes the effects of sin in this fallen world and we need to be saved from our sin 
So how does Jesus accomplish this? How does Jesus accomplish the salvation of his people? Our sin requires a sacrifice because we owe a debt that we cannot pay. We owe a debt against a holy God, an infinitely holy and infinitely perfect God. And so the sacrifice must be perfect. The sacrifice must be holy. And you know what the irony of all ironies is? The God of all creation, the holy, perfect, righteous God, the one against whom our sin is, is the one who provides the sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. What grace. What love. Paul talks about this in Romans 5a. It says that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He died in our place. He took the wrath of God on him so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, as John 3.16 reminds us of. God saves his people through his son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. That is an important qualifier. In the Greek here, it's very emphatic too that in him and him alone is salvation. There is nobody else that can save or has been sent to save. Acts 4.12 says this too. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. There is salvation in no one else. And this is a beautiful picture of the character of God. That he would send his one and only son to be our savior. Do you understand that that is a part of God's character that we are privileged to know through his son? We get to see him as savior. And since God sent Jesus into the world to save us, what does that mean for us practically? It means practically we need to turn in faith to him because he is the only way for salvation. We need to proclaim and center our lives around the one who saves us, and that is Jesus Christ. We shouldn't proclaim anything else or any other gospel save the one that we find in Jesus Christ because he was the one who has come to save his people. Now, we hear that word people, and we are easily to, to gloss over it, right? But who are God's people? Who, who are these people that he has come to save? Remember, who, who is Matthew primarily writing to at this point? He's writing to Jews. And so you hear the idea of God's people and his people, his chosen people. It brings up the idea of Israel, doesn't it? And God's chosen people. And in fact, this idea of people of God would have been used in the opposition to Gentiles and the opposition to the surrounding world. But thanks be to God for you and for me that God has always been about saving a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That includes the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul's words are this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Let's go back even further to Psalm 67 where the psalmist writes this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Do you see God has always been about saving a people from every tribe and tongue and nation in his son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Because we see that God doesn't have two different kinds of people here. God brings them all together as one people. In Ephesians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 11 here, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And good news. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What wonderful news that we are called into one body, with the cornerstone being the, the one who was sent to save his people, from their sins. We need to be reminded that that God's people here are not identified by some kind of physical, natural, geographical characteristic. His people are the ones who have been saved by the blood of His Son. They are brought into the family of God, adopted in. And in light of that, the name of Jesus Christ ought to be the most precious and sweetest name to us. Because of what that name means to us. That he came to save you and me from our sins. The birth of Christ was always pointing to his death on the cross and his resurrection. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this in application again? Again, I want to remind us, Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation. There is no other way. No other person has been given that task to come in and atone for the sins of God's people. Christ and Christ alone. And we're all in need of a Savior. And we all need to turn to Him. And therefore, we must proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected to those around us. This is of the utmost urgency in our lives. Secondly, we need to be reminded, since Jesus means Yahweh saves, we can rest in knowing that our salvation is sure. Since it is God who is faithful and never lies, and it is He who sent Jesus in the world, then God accomplishes what He sets out to accomplish, and He accomplished salvation for His people. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we've seen this too. We've seen time and time again where God's people are delivered from their their enemies. And now in Christ Jesus, we have been delivered from our greatest enemy, sin. Our God is the God who saves His people, as we've seen in the name of Jesus, His purpose. And God is also a God who is with His people, as we will see in the name of Emmanuel, and we see His presence. So let's look at verses 22 and 23 
uh, once again here. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the name Emmanuel here is translated from the Hebrew as God with us. And Matthew explicitly states this. He comes out, he defines it for us. He doesn't, again, leave us questioning what it means. And in part, what it looks like in the, middle, in, in the immediate context here is it's speaking of the physical presence, the physical birth of Jesus in this moment. is a recognition of Christ's humanity, that his condescension into human form has taken place and that the Son of God has come in human form. And at the same time, we need to be reminded that this also speaks of his divine nature because look at who is with us. It is God who is with us. Paul writes of this same idea in Colossians 2, 9, where he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So all that God is dwells in Christ Jesus. When he came into human form, he, he lost none of his holiness. He lost none of his righteousness or his mercy. See, in fact, there's some deep Christological truths here that we see that Jesus isn't just testifying to the God who is with us. He is the God who is with us in human form. He has taken on humanity that he might bring salvation to humanity. And what a glorious truth that is. Because Christ, as Emmanuel, is the fulfillment of a prophecy that God spoke through Isaiah long ago. And we we see that quotation here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Long before Jesus would come, Isaiah would prophesy of this day, and now in Christ it has been fulfilled. But this fulfillment of a prophecy is so much more than just a record of historical facts. There's a recapitulation of a promise that we see time and time again from Scripture. That God promises to be with His people. He promises His presence with His chosen people. And that's significant because God's promise in the Old Testament was a symbol of His mercy, of His grace, of His blessing, of His favor on His people. And also things like Joshua 1.5 where he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, here we go, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. What about that famous psalm that we love to quote, Psalm 23? How about verse 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I could go on and on with other references here, but we see clearly the promise of God's presence. And while it meant favor and blessing, it also meant protection and deliverance from their enemies. The good news for you and me is that that promise isn't relegated to the past. We have that promise now that that Christ will be with us, that God is going to be with us even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. Jesus himself, the one we're talking about today, God with us, says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The God who is with us is the God who stays with us in Christ Jesus You think about it, in the book of Matthew, we start with God's presence, God with us in Matthew 1, and we see it at the end of the book in Matthew chapter 28, right before Jesus gets ready to ascend. 
And even beyond that, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells God's people. Jesus comforting His disciples. Talk about this in John chapter 14. He gives another promise of God's presence in the form of the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father to give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. You think about that. God's promised presence, God with us, continues on. And it gets even better. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, we see another promise of God with us, of God's dwelling presence. And what we see here in Revelation 21 can only take place because Christ came in the world to save people. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning for the crying or or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So right here, because of what Christ has done, we get to read these words and know how it ends. That our God stays with us and there is coming a day where we will dwell with him, free from sin, free from pain, in the perfect presence of Christ our Lord. And in that today, we rejoice. So Emmanuel has given us so much here because it's evident that God has dwelt with His people. He does dwell with His people. He will continue to dwell with His people. But I also want to give a word of caution here too. Anytime we look at these nice little names and and biblical doctrines, I think sometimes we can elevate one part of this name over the other. We We can jump to the with us part and get really excited about that. And then we can neglect the most important part of that name. And the fact is, who is with us? It is God who is with us. And you think about that. This speaks to His imminence. This speaks to His nearness to us, that He is both transit, He is far away, and yet He is a God who is near. What a glorious truth that we have here, that God is with us. God is the greatest gift that we receive. John Piper uh, called it this, that God is the ultimate good of the gospel, that God is the ultimate treasure of the gospel. When we get Christ, when we get the gospel, we get God. And there is nothing better. There is no one better. And do you know what makes this even more amazing and humbling for us? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve His presence. We deserve to be cast out. Because of our sin. Because in Genesis 3, one of the darkest, vilest separations took place. When man sinned and rebelled against God. No longer 
was man in right relationship with God, their creator. No longer could they be in the presence of God. Instead, now they were his enemies and didn't even desire his presence. But thanks be to God, he did not leave us there. He sent his son. He even promised in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send someone to crush the head of Satan. And this person is the same person that we read about here in the child, Jesus Christ. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he came as Jesus to save us. One writer pointed out this way. Jesus came into a sin-stained world to endure the penalty of sin and stand in the place of sinners. He came to die on a cross to give his body, to shed his blood, so that you and I could be rescued from sin and reconciled back to God. Practically for us, what does this mean? As we think about Emmanuel, God with us. We need to be humbled by this. We need to stand in awe of our God. That same writer put it this way too. Stop and consider who this is who promises to be with you. This is the God who spoke the world into being. The God who rules over all creation. Every star in the sky, every mountain peak, every grain of sand, the sun and the moon, all of the oceans and all of the deserts of the earth. The God who myriads of angels continually worship and sing praises to. The God whose glory is beyond our imagination and whose holiness is beyond our comprehension. This God is with you. Take that in. This is no mere thing that a beautifully, gloriously, perfectly righteous God would dwell with sinful people who hated him. And yet he does it for his glory and for our good. That God is with us. That is our God, the one true living God. And I think there's something else we need to do with that. If that God is so good and that's the God that we serve, who sent his son to die on the cross, We cannot keep it to ourselves. We must go tell the world about His excellent greatness and the fact that He sent Jesus, that Yahweh is salvation, and that He is Emmanuel, the God who has come to dwell with us. We are to proclaim Him in obedience to Him, in His strength, by His power, for His glory. We need not fear the enemy. We need not fear sin. We need not fear death because Christ has overcome and He is with us. That is our God. So I ask you again, what's in a name? In the name of Jesus, salvation. What's in a name? Emmanuel, our God's presence. Jesus, God to save us. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we